The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater commercial SUV with over 2,000 litres of cargo space, two-ton towing capacity and legendary four-wheel drive technology. MitsubishiMotors.ie It's Monday. It's the right hook, and it's news talk. George Hook here, and uh, I've got some of the things that really got me going today on today's program. I'm joined, as I said now, by the newly elected TD for Dublin Rathdown, representing the Green Party, Catherine Martin. Deputy Martin, welcome to the program, and congratulations. Thank, thank you very much, George. Now, you're part of a group which is um, the largest group of women ever in Dáil Éireann, 22% increase on the last time, no doubt helped by the quota. But you all, not all, obviously, but there are very different views represented by the women. So you're not a you're not a cohesive group, are you? No, and uh, I would like to say also, um, I was delighted to, that it went up to twenty two percent. And on that that first day in the the doll, one of the the emotions was I was jubilant that I was going there's going to be thirty five women in this the thirty second doll. But within a few minutes of, of sitting down in the Dáil Chamber, what struck me was there's a lot more to be, to, to be done there, you know. It was still a, a sea of suits and ties that I saw. And um, so I, I would hope that we can do whatever we can as, as the, the, the 35 in the 32nd Dáil to increase that even more. I think it's very important we have a balanced Dáil. You know, we're almost 51% of the population and yet we're only 22% in our parliament. And up until that, it had never been uh, more than 15% female, you know, so that has led to a lot of issues um, that haven't been addressed. And yes, we come from, you know, cross party. Um, uh, but, you know, at the, at the end of the day, we've worked a lot of the new female deputies. I've met through Women for Election events and um, also the, the National Women's Council of Ireland. And we, 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 we know each other and we want to do what, what's, what's necessary to, to inspire more to run. But I go back to your original point, though. You... Like you're a Green Party TD, Mary Mitchell O'Connor is a Fine Gael TD, uh, the new TD for Mayo is a Fine Fall TD, and and it goes on. I mean, you have very different political viewpoints, uh, so you you're only drawn together on on. I'm not saying it's a minor issue, but it's a narrow issue, the issue of female representation in Dolair. or broader the many issues that that affect women and that haven't been addressed properly in the Dáil because of that lack of proper representation in the Dáil. And that's where, you know, I, I feel we should, I would like to see a, a caucus, a women's caucus in the 32nd Dáil where we work together cross-party. Let's try this out. Let's work together cross-party to address these issues to find solutions and then bring it back to our parties with broad agreement. It works in other countries. In Brazil, you know, is, is a fine example of where it works. They actually vote and block in, in Brazil, the, the Women's Caucus, you know. That would be deeply worrying for, like, really, wouldn't it? Wouldn't what? it be, seriously, wouldn't it be deeply worrying if 30 people, uh, 35 people voted on block, uh, all representing and having been elected on on quite different platforms? Well, I I would reckon, actually, George, because from speaking to, to the other TDs, if you ask those TDs from all across the parties, what comes up in the doors, you'll find it's childcare, you'll find it's education, you'll find it's mental health, you'll find it's um, 
that for well, ourselves. mental health isn't a isn't a no. female issue. In fact, I've a text literally issue, now. No, I've a text literally now uh, for our our health slot at six o'clock from somebody who is suffering from a huge anxiety crisis every day. It's somebody called John. Like mental health is a, an no, issue. It's, it's also, like. What about all the men who voted for you? Because you couldn't have got elected without men voting for you. So are they are their issues abandoned now by the women's no, caucus? No, I'm deeply worried by the idea. No, you shouldn't be worried, the, George. Why? You should be heartened by this. You know, because we have 35 women out of 158, and I feel quite strongly about this, and it will impact on men too, because we're talking about, say, more fra- family-friendly hours in the doll. The men cannot be forgotten here. Sometimes it's 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 not just the woman who's but, the parent, but you've the just man. forgotten so, them. No, but you I'm just bringing that into voting. There. I'm deeply worried that the only issue for these 35 women will be appear to be no. the issues they're worried about, and they're going to vote on block. No. I mean, you George, cannot no, no, seriously. No, no. George, no, listen suggest. to me. Listen to me for no, a moment. No, you said, you said, not me, you said we should vote en bloc like they do in Brazil. I don't think it's too no, many people in Ireland voted for the Brazilian for, no, parliament. George, in fairness, I didn't say we should. I said it works where they vote en bloc in Brazil. And I'm saying on, on these issues of childcare, of the, the gender pay gap and issues like that, let's come together and find solutions. You know, I think that would be a huge positive and something different for the doll. We have been elected. It's the biggest representation of females. And men voted for us as well as females, but they wanted that female representation at all to tackle these issues. No, they and, didn't. And no, they didn't. Why, they why didn't. not, George? They why do you think a man vo- didn't want a female in the doll? No, I didn't. He didn't vote for you because you were a woman. He voted for you because he thought you were the best candidate, number one. And number two, he voted for you because he is deeply committed to environmental issues. I, I would suggest that's why any man voted for you. No, but I mean, I, I voted heard, yes, for women definitely because in I was the, the election. Most, no, and I agree. I was. I. I never played the woman card in the doors. I. I but but, but men. Now. No, but men pointed out to me on the doors that they were worried about the fact of the lack of proper female representation in the doll. Men brought it up in the doors, not just women. So well, there's uh, one for no, you. <laughs> well uh, last week we were told that the only thing that people said on the doors was reform of the doll, that this was the single most important issue on doorstep. I think I think what we hear in doors is what suits a politician to say they heard on the doorsteps, not what they actually heard on doorsteps. Like I was on doorsteps with five different TDs from different parties and I I, I didn't hear one one person say that they were worried about women. I heard them talk about homelessness. I t- heard them talk about health care. I heard them talk about unemployment. I heard them talking about about those kind of issues. I didn't hear anybody talk about doll reform or we need more women. No. What I'm saying and is I went out with Lucinda, Lucinda Creighton. I went out with Mary Lou MacDonald. Okay. And what I'm saying to you is it wasn't only women who mentioned the lack of female representation at all. Men mentioned it too. And yes, on, on the doors, the, the issues I heard were childcare, education, homelessness, housing, climate change, of course. But they're not female issues. No. They're, they're the issues that affect citizens. Yes, but childcare needs to be addressed and we need to make our, our doll more family friendly. And what I'm saying is let's facilitate that with a caucus. A proper, properly organised caucus could have real change in, in our doll. 
It's, it's worked in other places and it can foster solidarity amongst women, which would be really important too. And it can also be used to empower women too and give them more help. Other, other countries use it to, um, to, for workshops to help women in the doll because it's quite a daunting place and if you go back to those five C's and why women aren't going for there's confidence there is one of the C's and we need something more to give them more confidence and that other countries look at that and um, and do workshops to help them and to facilitate empowerment in the doll and the speeches etc and confidence but I'm saying we, we do need to tackle the Issues like childcare, like the gender pay gap, issues that have been left aside and haven't been brought. These issues haven't been brought to the fore because our doll up until now has never been less than 85% male. So let's think something different. Let's think outside the box. You know, what's, where's the harm in that? No. And, and, and empower women. And I think we need to do whatever we can to get more women. I, I'd like to aim. My daughter's five. I hope by the time she's 18 and voting that it's 50-50 in the doll because that's what we need we need proper fair representation in but you see I wouldn't have a problem if it was 70-30 women I don't, I don't know why we're so hung up in numbers I think what I want is I want a government and the one thing I don't have at the moment is a government it doesn't matter whether it's a government made up of men or women I just want a government and we haven't got a government I would have thought that was a oh, far more important that issue. is key but you you, you started the, 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 this today this item today talking about women so you didn't ask me about government so then you asked what can the women do so that's what Off I was bringing go. about the caucus How you, so when it comes to, when it comes to government I, I think that the people voted for change and we, they need to be respected and I feel we have a duty I have a duty and I think all 158 members of the 32nd doll have a duty to talk and to listen and see what they can do to but form, does that to form a government everyone has, has a duty but nobody wants to coalesce with Sinn Féin before the election, the two biggest parties then and the two biggest parties now both said they will not coalesce with Sinn Féin. So how can you blame Sinn Féin for not being involved when nobody wants to talk to them? Well, no, I, I think that's wrong. And there was too much in those three weeks of that campaign of I'm ruling you out. That, that's, that's all I heard. And people, that's not why you're elected. You're not elected to rule people out and not form a government. You're elected to form a government and to talk and to listen. And I think there's an inert duty and responsibility to do that. So and that's why we the, Greens, so the Greens always said, we were probably the, one of the few that said, we will talk to anyone. Because um, there's a duty to do that, to talk and to listen. Who knows where it would lead? Obviously, you know, as Green Party Deputy Leader, our recovery is fragile. We, we are two in, in the doll. You know, so we're not the main catalyst for, for this government. I, I would say the main catalyst is Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael and they need to talk. But there is a duty to talk and to listen. And that duty lies with each and every member of the Dáil. But we, we have, we're no nearer forming a government than we were the day after the election. But the numbers, like... The numbers, it comes back to the numbers that don't, so simply don't stack up. Is that what you're going to say? That, that's, that's, uh, yeah. you, you don't need honours degree No, you don't maths. need honours degree in maths for that. But, and where you, can so see the stability, where you can see the stability. What are we going to do? Well, the stability would lie with Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. And whether it's a minority or a grand coalition, and the grand coalition seems to be ruled out uh, every, every which way. But, but it, it, Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael need to talk. I, I think there's a duty there in Fianna Fáil. They can't, they can't not talk. So even if it's a minority government, they must talk. What's a minority government? In fact, people have asked me that on the radio. I thought a minority government was where uh, you had less votes than the others, but apparently it doesn't. Well, you'll have, you'll have 
probably a, a Fianna Gael-led minority government with Fianna Fáil agreeing to support them on certain issues and from the opposition benches. And that's why you would need, it looks most likely that it'd be, if, if it's a minority, it'd be Fianna Gael in, in power. So Fianna that needs some consent, you know, and cooperation from Fianna Fáil as the, the larger of the opposition parties. So that's why they need to talk, because if it's not a grand coalition, and that seems to be ruled out, then they have to talk. But, uh, There's no point in bringing this rainbow coalition together and them not talking to each other. But, There's a duty on uh, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael to talk. But for peop- ordinary people, and in this regard I'm an ordinary person because I'm not a politician, uh, I just vote and I pay taxes, so that makes me an ordinary citizen. Um, how can you possibly have a government led by uh, a third of the uh, deputies in Dole. How can you have a government led by a third of the deputies and then there's another party sitting on the opposite side of the fence because who fe- can literally at any moment uh, just say, no, we don't agree with this and there are, we could probably pick a ton of things, the most notable being they are miles apart in relation to water, for instance. Yes, well, that's where they have to, that's why it's so important that they come together and talk and listen to each other and, and iron out, you know, what exactly their, their agreement is. If one is in opposition, what are they going to support in, in the person, the party in government? And they'll have independence. Do you seriously think this will work? Well, I think that people have voted for change and we have to embrace change. But uh, obviously, I would feel that the Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, uh, grand coalition would be much more stable for, for our country and st- stability is key. But, that, but that's they've said it's not going to happen. But do you not do, like the issue for the Green Party your recovery is fragile. It's very fragile yes. So therefore isn't it, as deputy leader by virtue of the fact that two of you there, Eamon Ryan yourself. Well, Isn't I was elected deputy leader in 2011. Right, okay, yeah, but but you're even more deputy leader now because you're in Dáil <laughs> Like, you're you're the second person in the Dáil yes. with the group, as opposed to the party. Um, but, but the situation now surely is. Isn't it much more important for the Green Party to attempt to get environmental issues up front and centre at a time when they clearly are not. Andy Kenny said when he came back from uh, a major discussion about climate change, he came back and said, well, it's not really uh, in the forefront of our thinking, didn't he? He, he did, and it was very disappointing. He said, he said one thing <laughs> when he's talking to the, the leaders of the, of the world governments and then outside to our, our national broadcaster, he said something very different. He which came is back and said, yeah. it's not... It's not no. a priority. And started making excuses and, and, you know, different ways he, he could get out of it. And that's highly disappointing. We as, as two, yes, it is very fragile. And we've been a volu- voluntary organisation and t- did quite well. But, you know, and the but easy the and reason, safe thing. It's interesting why you're only two. In fact, why you were zero just a short time yeah. ago, and now you're two. I tried to work out before you came in what the percentage increase was from zero to two, and I couldn't work it out. Um, but the the thing is, the reason you went to zero was you went into government with a, a party that you had spent the previous X number of years pillorying. Then you joined them and you paid an enormous price for it. So isn't there a real danger now that if you then go into government, which clearly you're being courted by, yeah. by both parties, if you go into government now with them, there's a real danger that you go from two to zero again if this next government, whatever shape, size, colour it is, uh, proves as some 
unpopular as last lot, Joe. Yes, and, and obviously the, 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 the easier and safer option for us as a party is to be in opposition and in constructive opposition. And I'm loyal to my party, but there's a duty of care to the country as well. So we are willing and, you know, the party would be willing, as we all have said, to talk. Where's the harm in talking? Yeah, but talking and means no, but at least we can we can address the issues that the next government might form. You know, at at the moment we wouldn't be supporting any theatre because we haven't seen any policies. But, it's but, very but early. that was the point John Gormley, Eamon Ryan, and others made when they went into government with Fianna Fáil. They said, you know, this is all about getting green policies yeah. involved. In fact, in the dying days of that doll, you signed off on a few things, uh, you know, and and got in. To walked out door about ten minutes later, and um, the, the point is that that was the demise of the party. Yes, now you're back in a fragile position, and you're suggesting no, you, you might su- do the same no, thing. I'm not suggesting that. I'm saying we're willing to to talk and to listen. And do you not think it is better that you, as you're saying, that the citizen who voted? Like I voted, but the citizens who I voted... I don't think anybody voted no, for what they got. No, do you not think you deserve, at the very least, for people not to be burying their heads in the sand and saying, you know, I'm running to the hills because I'm afraid of my party's future, when it should be the country should come first. And not only... You talk about the Greens being in a fragile recovery. This country is in a fragile recovery. And that needs to come first. So now is not a time to bury heads in the sand and worry about your own, one's own future. Now is the time to be brave, to be innovative and use imagination, have the courage to at least come to the table and maybe have input and policies, whether you end up supporting a government or not. And I would reckon as two, the Greens will not, we will be in constructive opposition, but at least we are willing to come to the table. And, the, and I think that's what everyone should do. And there's a duty to do that we wait and see I've no doubt I'm going to be talking to you (laughs) for however long this all lasts The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7 seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips MitsubishiMotors.ie Welcome back it's The Right Hook with George Hook well there have been lots of things happening in the recent weeks, but there is one story which I believe has enormous potential to affect the lives of our children and our grandchildren. It is the agreement between the EU and Turkey, uh, which is aimed at, in some way, uh, exerting some sort of control on the refugee crisis. I'm joined now by Brussels Bureau Chief for the Financial Times, Peter Spiegel. Peter, welcome to the program. Thank you, George. Uh, maybe a different perspective for you in Brussels than me in Dublin, but but this sounds like a deal that is never going to work. Well, I must say it's a similar perspective here in Brussels, to be honest with you, and it's not just you and me. In talking to very senior EU officials, um, they give it a very low percentage chance of working. And their explanation is that they've tried everything else, so we got to at least try this. But it is very much predicated on the the, uh, the, the assumption that Greece, in particular, which which for decades uh, has been seen as having an asylum system and a refugee system that is substandard, in some cases uh, the courts have ruled inhuman, suddenly over the course of forty eight seventy two hours is going to turn into an administrative utopia where. You know, tens of thousands of refugees will be able to be processed 
and if they don't need international protection, sent back to Turkey uh, within weeks. It, it, it's just, you know, almost too good to to believe, and frankly, a lot of EU officials admit that. Now, I think, and, and I need your help here, because um, the, the, the central part of the story is that the EU, for every illegal migrant that's sent back, the EU will take one legitimate refugee from Syria. In return for this, and it's the return I'm really worried about, in return for this, they will uh, pay the Turks uh, billions of euro. They will offer them some kind of visa-free travel and, most importantly, I think, speed up uh, Turkey's accession to the EU. Now, the reason Turkey's accession, Peter, hasn't been speeded up up to this point is that everybody in Europe is worried about opening up to 72 million Turks, largely Muslim, no? I think I think the membership issue is a bit of a red herring for okay. this reason, it, because they're going to open what are called chapters, which are basically sort of issue areas for negotiation. But there are 35 chapters in all, and we're only opening up one or two. So I think the, the, the chances of Turkey ever becoming a member, even after this deal, are very slim. But the other two issues, you're 100% right, particularly this visa-free travel issue. Now, this is something the Turks have wanted for years, and for the same reasons you talk about, they have been prevented. There are a lot of things about the anti-terrorism laws in Turkey, about biometric passports, a whole sort of, 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 of range of issues of why Turks have not been given BCP travel. And suddenly they're saying, in literally three months, we are going to, if you m- meet some of these criteria, we're going to now open up all of Europe uh, to Turks flying in, into, into Europe, much like Americans or, or other more developed countries have visa-free travel. Now, that, that does open up Europe to 70, 80 million Turks coming into, potentially, into Europe uh, without any checks, without any processing. And I think that, frankly, is a more realistic outcome of this deal. And I think it's something that has really caused a lot of political concern in, in places like France in particular, where this does raise a lot of uh, you know, alarms and, and, and political uh, concerns about sort of, you know, unchecked uh, travel. Where do you think history and tradition plays a part here? Um, In that, uh, first of all, it's interesting you mentioned France. France has an existing problem of integration with many of the people of its former colonies and so on. But then also I was looking at the map of the EU recently and I was comparing it to a map of the old Ottoman Empire, the old Turkish Empire. There's a substantial number of countries that are today part of the EU who were once part of the Ottoman Empire, and presumably their memories aren't too happy about, uh, happy about it, albeit it's a long time ago. Does that play now or not? It plays some role, and to be honest with you, in some of the sort of the far right parties in in Eastern Europe, in particular, you've heard the, the Hungarian Prime Minister, for instance, uh, Viktor Orban, explicitly mention, you know, we lived a long time under Muslim rule; we'd not like to do it again. Now, now, that, frankly, that is not something that is that is talked about in the European mainstream. Uh, so, it, but it's a factor. I, I think, frankly, what what is much more of a factor is pure pure politics here. I mean, what is happening in Germany, in particular, is that there are hundreds of thousands of migrants showing up in Germany, and Merkel is desperate, 
absolutely desperate to get this to stop. And she's the one who's driven this deal. She's the one who, in many people's view, has given up the shop to the Turks on the money, on the visa liberalization, uh, on the membership issues. It has been driven by Merkel uh, in a sense of desperation. And it's got a lot of people here in Brussels very, very angry. All right. My guest is Peter Spiegel, a Brussels bureau chief for the Financial Times, and the issue of what I'd see as little more than the bribery and corruption of the Turks uh, with vast sums of European Union money uh, to try and solve the migrant uh, crisis for the 27 countries who don't want to be bothered about it. But, Peter, there, I surely the big worry here is just your last couple of sentences. Merkel's driving it. This is about Germany. Um, the European Union wasn't supposed to be about the great German Empire. We we didn't think we were going back to uh, the 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 German Empire of Bismarck or whoever. This is surely worrying for every other one of the remaining twenty six or twenty seven. Surely. Yeah, and honestly, I think this is more of the theme that you hear more frequently in Brussels than the issue you were talking about in terms of sort of the, 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 the anti-Muslim sentiment or whatnot. What you hear in Brussels, and it's not just this, but remember, the Eurozone crisis, the, 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 the policies, not only in Ireland, but clearly in Greece, again, driven by Germany. The Ukraine crisis, the, the policy of, of sanctions against Russia, that was, germ, that was dri- driven by Germany. And now on, on refugee policy, again, uh, it, is, it is German domestic politics that is driving this crisis response. So a lot of resentment uh, in all of these crises, particularly one after the other after the other, where, where they see Germany and, and Merkel and, and her domestic politics driving the resp- crisis response. And that's why you see in France in particular become a bit uncomfortable about some of this stuff, because you know, traditionally they were supposed to be co-equal in the EU. In this debate, they clearly are not. In the Eurozone crisis, they clearly are not. And in, in the Russian sanctions debate, they clearly were not. So yes, it, it was not supposed to be thus. I mean, the old joke was that, you know, the, the a lot of these institutions, these post-war institutions, were about keeping Germany down uh, to, to sort of defang German uh, nationalism. But what has happened in, in some critics' minds is, you know, German nationalism may have been, subs- been put down, but it's been subsumed into the EU. And the EU has become the tool by which German gets its national interests done. Uh, and so, yes, I think that debate is very live here in Brussels, much more so than this issue of, of you know, is, is, is Europe suddenly becoming awash in, 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 in Muslims and, and, and the Turkish question. It- may be a bit uh, dramatic of me to say so, but uh, the economic panzer division would appear to work much better than the sort of tractored version of World War Two. I mean, you know, some people it's only you know, sometimes only half jokingly have said you know they've accomplished their means uh, by 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 the pen that they they tried to by the sword. Now, that is not is not a majority view, uh, but that certainly does, does come up in discussions. What is different about the refugee crisis, though, than either the the Russia crisis or the or the Eurozone crisis, is this is a, a crisis where the Germans are the demandeur. They are the ones asking other countries for help. In the other way, other crises, we've had other countries coming to Germany for help. And you've seen a very, you know, in some respects, a weakened Merkel in this crisis. You know, she wanted much more in this Turkey deal than she got in the end. I mean, there was, there was again, on the issue of, of EU membership, uh, there were chapters that, 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 that Turkey wanted opened. 
uh, that she didn't get, uh, even though she advocated for it. Uh, there was much more uh, faster and more easy route to, to visa liberalization that she won, and she didn't get that in the okay. end. But what about us? It, just to finally, and my guest, remember, is Peter Spiegel, the Brussels Bureau Chief for the Financial Times, on the deal the EU are trying to cobble together with Turkey uh, to, to help in some way with the refugee crisis. We've been extraordinarily good Europeans, really. We accepted the euro and we do everything. We're really good over here. Um, and we voted a zillion times on all the various referenda and so on. But, like, we don't seem to have any say in this at all. Our guy, the Taoiseach, now caretaker Taoiseach, he just seems to go over to these meetings and say, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full. And that may not represent the views of the five million people who live here. I mean, I think it's slightly unfair for a couple of reasons. One, as you mentioned, he's a caretaker now. So uh, so no one in, in Europe knows whether he's going to return as Taoiseach. And as a result, let's be honest, these are all politicians. He was uh, doing this before he was a caretaker. Peter. No, that's true. That's true. But the other fact of the matter is Ireland is on the periphery of this debate. They are, you know, you're, it's a country that's in, in the far northwest. There are countries on the front line here in the Balkans, Austria, Germany, Greece, the countries that are directly affected by this are the ones who are having their voice heard. So I don't think it's really a, a purely, uh, uh, you know, Irish, Ireland getting ignored in this debate. Britain, Spain, you know, other rather large countries are not really active in this debate because they're not the countries directly affected. And I think that's, that's, that's I, think, I think it's unfair to blame Enda Kennedy for this reason. I think it's just he, Ireland is not seen as a country that is directly affected and directly involved. And I think that's why the Irish voice hasn't been heard that, that loudly. I tell you, when 70 million Turks arrive in with their visas, we're all going to be affected, Peter. And I think those who ignore history live to repeat it, as you well know. Absolutely. I, I would, <laughs> although, you know, as an American, I find Ireland to be a lovely place to visit and, and perhaps even settle someday. I would think that most of the Turks who are showing up in Europe are not going to end up in Dublin. They're going to go to, to Germany. That is a, traditionally where the Turkish community is largest. Okay. Here in Belgium, you have a huge Turkish community. It, it's, not a, it's not a place where you're going to get a huge number of Turks showing up. And I think for that reason, that Kenny's voice is just not going to be heard in this debate. Yeah, I think Kenny just about got off the plane waving two pieces of paper and saying peace in our time, you know? Uh, it's certainly one interpretation. There's certainly a lot of, of European leaders who have who have who have jumped on that bandwagon, uh, who have advocated for this deal. Um, I guess the only the only defense I would make of of, of of the Irish government on this one is that it's it's a bit of an unfair criticism because it, he's just not a, a major player in here, All like right. a lot of countries who are not sort of directly in the front line of this this, this crisis. All right, thank you so much for joining me, Peter Spiegel, uh, who is the Brussels uh, bureau chief for the Financial Times. Your thoughts, though, are important to 53106, cost 30 cents. Peter Spiegel said it was unfair. It may even not be important, Peter reckons. But I think that what is happening in Europe marks the end of the European Union, marks the end of a great experiment. It may mark the end of a, another great currency experiment, the euro where now does this great economy of ours that we keep talking about, where does it go if Europe goes into recession? And this may well be the trigger that starts it. 
The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Welcome back. It's The Right Hook with George Hook. Now, I'm joined by Robert Schmuel. Um, he's director of the John Galvin Programme in Journalism, Ethics and Democracy at the University of Notre Dame, where he is Professor of American Studies. Professor Schmuel, welcome to the programme. Thank you very much. And you're in Ireland, of course, because you've been involved in the Orti documentary about the rebellion, uh, in which you have a major contribution and Notre Dame hugely involved. But I thought I'd take the advantage of you having in Dublin because President Obama's Cuba, the first president since... Probably Theodore Roosevelt or something. A little bit later, a little bit later, but uh, we're talking about a very long time since an American president has gone the 90 miles to uh, Cuba. And I think, George, one way to look at it is that Barack Obama inherited severe problems involving the military, and I need not list them, uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, now certainly uh, the problems in Syria. And I think he looks at this initiative with Cuba as a positive part of his legacy. And he took the initiative. The United States government worked with the Vatican and indeed with Pope Francis on the the relationship and improving this uh, relationship. And I think that uh, most importantly, during the Obama administration, we have heard about a pivot to Asia. That pivot really never happened. But this two-step to Cuba is going to be one that potentially is beneficial not only to Cuba but also to the United States and more broadly – in terms of how the United States is perceived in Latin America. All right. Now, there's one thing about Obama being in Cuba where he is, and he's the first president for a long time to be there. What I think in a way is almost more interesting is is not what, although very importantly, its relationship, America's relationship with Latin America, all that sort of good stuff – the history of Cuba is incredibly interesting because remember, you've really got to be an old age pensioner to have remembered when it looked as if there was going to be nuclear war and it looked as if nuclear missiles were going to be pointing at the U.S. from a distance of 90 miles, not distance of 2,000 miles, 90 miles. Now, can we go back a little further, if you don't mind? Where was Cuba? I mean, Cuba was what? It's an island in the Caribbean, but it was a dictatorship, wasn't it? And it kind of had illegal gambling and prostitution and nightclubs and all that sort of stuff. Wasn't that right? It it did. Uh, It also was a mecca for many Americans, uh, and they would go down there on their holidays. We all remember that uh, Ernest Hemingway spent many years in Cuba, worked there, fished there, uh, and it it was an attractive place. It was a dictatorship and indeed Fidel Castro comes along and there is a revolution. 
That takes place shortly thereafter. You see the alignment with um, uh, the Soviet Union, which leads to the missiles that were based in uh, Cuba. Um, you had the Bay of Pigs in 1961, which was an attempt to overthrow Castro that failed horribly, miserably. Under John F. Kennedy. Uh, under, under John F. Kennedy. Uh, but then uh, you had the Bay of Pigs not terribly long afterwards um, into 1962. Um, and you had the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, which probably was one of Kennedy's finest hours. So that you have Cuba, this small little island – uh, occupying the mental space of Americans uh, in an extraordinary way over that period. Well, that was so important in terms of uh, how the U.S. handled it, in terms of uh, the relationship of Cuba to uh, the Soviet Union, uh, that um, it's remarkable yet true that now – uh, we're looking at the possibility of uh, full diplomatic relations yeah. and a normalization of uh, trade and tourism. Now, Professor of American Studies at Notre Dame University, Robert Schmuel, is with me in the studio. The, is it true that the Americans tried to bump off Castro? They were sort of oh, favored sure. by with exploding cigars or sure. whatever. I mean, Did they it, really? It, sure. And um, it ha it uh, was attempted, but it did not uh, succeed. So that uh, for an American over the past 50 or so years, you see this very uneasy relationship and you see the large number of Cubans who left the island and uh, moved to the United States, huge uh, Cuban community community in uh, Florida. Yeah. Can I just talk about that Cuban community in Florida? Because we remember the Vietnamese boat people. We now see the Syrian boat people escaping. Um, the Cubans were the first boat people, really, because they only were 90 miles away. And they, tried, they escaped from Cuba by boat to Florida. Wasn't that how it happened, really? This is uh, the continuing story. And there was a note in uh, one of the Irish newspapers that I read yesterday that uh, a number of Cubans uh, perished seeking uh, to make their way from uh, from their island to the United States. So it continues uh, to today. But I think more importantly, Barack Obama is looking for legacy items and by that I mean uh, initiatives that he undertakes largely on his own that will have a resonance in the future. And as I mentioned, I, I think that the, the Middle East and that area has been such a problem for the United States. And I don't think that we've done all that much vis-a-vis -vis Asia. I mean all one has to do is look at the threat from North Korea all one has to do is look at the military buildup in uh, China. Um, but this was something that was manageable, that was doable, 
that had the blessing of uh, the Vatican. Um, and it is Cuba, but it's more than Cuba. Well, I want to ask you about more than Cuba. I mean, hold on here. We're talking about the Obama legacy. And then we're talking about he's going to normalize relations so the tourists are going to head off to um, uh, Cuba and you're going to be able to smoke Cuban cigars after dinner with your cognac, right? Like, why is, why is this tiny island in the Caribbean how could a president think this is a big deal? Why is it a big deal? Oh, for, for this very important reason, the countries of Latin America have had a long-term animus directed to the United States because of our treatment of Cuba. So by trying to restore relations with Cuba, these countries – Many of, uh, many of them are places where Americans would visit. Many of them are places where Americans would do business. These countries will look much more favorably uh, at the U.S. We will look less as an imperialist power and more of a good neighbor as a result of this. But, but the extraordinary thing about this Cuban thing is Guantanamo Bay – is there. And so there's this extraordinary uh, situation where, on one hand, America doesn't talk to Cuba and won't import Cuban products or, or allow visits there. And then they've got this, what after all is is a carabuncle on, on, on the backside of American democracy, uh, Guantanamo Bay. Which, as uh, you would remember and many of your listeners the first day that Barack Obama was in the White House, he said, I will close down Guantanamo Bay. Uh, and that has not happened. And there are people who say it it is not going to happen during his uh, presidency. Well, isn't that the point, though? Isn't what he's doing now, and he's down there, I mean, isn't it cosmetic if Guantanamo Bay is still there? I think cosmetic is too strong a term. I think that um, the most important um, possession of an American president is time. And by that I mean that where a president devotes his or her attention becomes uh, critical. He is on his own going to Cuba, not alone, but with his wife and with his daughters that's a huge symbolic statement. That is an embrace uh, of this country that has been a pariah in the mind of America for so long. Okay. But could I put this there, that rather than Latin America, and who am I to cross swords with a distinguished historian from Notre Dame like yourself, but maybe this has something to do with the enormous Hispanic population on the United States mainland itself and the relationship you have with countries like Mexico and Costa Rica and so on where you're talking about illegal immigration and so on. So maybe it's more domestic than international. I think, Don't you think, George, that uh, most decisions like this that are monumental in nature are as much domestic as they are sure. international? And uh, as you say, this is an opening. 
It is a, a new venture. It is a way to drive a nail, another nail, into the coffin of the Cold War. And it is something that Barack Obama could do on his own. They have not lifted formally the entire embargo. None of that has happened. But symbolically to have the president of the United States on Cuban soil with his family and spending about two or three days there uh, tells us uh, a great deal about Barack Obama. All right. Uh, my guest, Professor of American Studies uh, at Notre Dame University, Robert Schmuel. By the way, I'm going to be talking to Robert in the next week or so uh, about his new book, which is really interesting, about the American influence and the American involvement in the rising of 1916. A lot of stuff I didn't know, and I'm sure a lot of stuff you'll be interested in knowing. For my guest, Robert Schmuel. Robert, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Well, thank you for listening to that digest of news from the Daily Right Hook. But, of course, you can hear the full version in all its uh, excitement between 4.30 and 7 every day, Monday to Friday, here on News Talk. Do take care.